What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, It's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And in the studio, we've got Jake live and we've got Gabby and Pete not here today, but that's okay. We're going to hold down the... So far, my coup d'etat of the podcast has taken down two of the <laughs> original members, <laughs> and now there's just one left to go. Pretty soon it's going to be the Undiplomatic <laughs> Podcast with your host, Jake Dello. Yeah. Fortunately, Van's taken a leave of absence, <laughs> and he'll be back when I think it's appropriate. Well, in keeping with the idea that down is up, <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? um, just before we got in here... Of all people, Mitt Romney displayed a profile in Courage at the uh, farcical Senate impeachment trial. Yes, I saw that. Standing up to say that the president of his party should be removed from office. Yes. That that he should be impeached. And that's a big deal. Obviously not nearly enough. And it was a losing, it was predictably like going down with the ship and he did it anyway. And that's very, I almost hesitate to make the comparison. That's very Martin Luther King. Like, that's very noble. Look, I'm I'm not a fan of right-wing religious Uh, fundamentalists myself. But he came out with an answer that only a real red-blooded right-wing American could give. I I can respect that, Matt. We're in an age where it's hard to find people who are consistent in their convictions. So, shout out to Mitt Romney? I hope he doesn't that's, become. That's, I hope he doesn't become good guy, Mitt. That's now. not. A, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's. You're not going to hear that on the podcast very much. No. Well, <laughs> here's a start. You know. Yeah. Slowly veering towards the right, just a teeny bit. Yeah. Two other quick hits. One, the Trump administration, and this is to my eternal uh, anger, rage, frustration. They have reversed the Obama era policy from 2014, banning landmines. Oh, so far out. it's fucking crazy. There, there's a, you know... It's fucking criminal. Who the fuck needs landmines, dude? It's criminal. It's 2020. You have drones. It's, it's Why do you 2020. Need land- <laughs> you need landmines? There's not enough kids with their limbs blown off in fucking Africa. And that, so there, in 2014, one of the things that started my politics, actually, when I was serving in the military in the George W. Bush uh, era, I was pretty active 
that I was serving in Korea, incidentally, mm-hmm. I was very active in the campaign to ban landmines. Okay. And it's a little known fact. And so I was I was an activist, grassroots, actually, movement participant in that campaign. Uh, I had the, the shirt and everything. Oh, yeah. You know, no more landmines. And I like was hosting events and I threw money their way and was like trying to get petition signatures, like real actual activism. And I was just incensed by what I could see uh, from serving in Korea, where there are tens yeah. of thousands of landmines in the demilitarized yeah. zone. They weren't serving any practical purpose because like we had a very good assessment of North Korean intentions and in sizing up the enemy. And at the time, the main argument that um, the Department of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were making about landmines, the need for them, was pointing to the Korea case. And so Korea was the reason for the U.S. to not sign the Ottawa Convention that banned landmines. That, and that goes back to the Clinton era. But yeah. like, the Korea was their strategic argument. But yet I'm looking at this as a budding Korea expert, uh, mm-hmm. just learning about coercion and deterrence and security studies. But I'm looking and like, look, North Korea has no intention of invading the no, South right now. No, they're in fact like at the time they were on the back end of like a severe famine. They were just, the regime was trying to survive. Yeah, and so you're like you're looking at this country. The landmines are not serving any kind of real purpose here. And you have all these other this other arsenal of weapons and these mass militaries. Where you're like, what? Are, who are you kidding? Yeah. The landmines are not doing the job. Landmines are criminal. They're indiscriminate. Yes. That's one. Yep. That's that's probably the main reason. They don't kill often. They just maim. I haven't read it myself, but I'm pretty sure that's against the Geneva Convention. You it, can't well, just so this maim. Is, this is why so many countries, almost all countries, have banned them. The countries that have not banned them, interestingly, are the ones who find them strategically useful. Which means this is yet another example, right? My left technocrat world. It's yet another example <laughs> where the ability to marshal strategic arguments and make policy arguments or normative claims on strategic grounds in the sort of the lexicon and the confines of strategic thinking, that is what can make a difference here. And so one of my frustrations, I was, I, I was not able to have a public voice back in yeah, the early 2000s. Yeah. But one of my frustrations was that my fellow activist community on landmines, they weren't really making strategic arguments. They were making the humanity argument about the the casualty numbers of innocents and children and women who are being disproportionately harmed. They weren't making the mm. these contribute nothing to deterrence arguments. And those are the arguments that the people advocating for landmines in the government were making. So it's like there was an incommensurate nature to how the arguments were being presented. Yeah. And so if you can't take on the national security crowd on their terms, it's, it's hard to actually win. And this was an example of that. And like you said, like they're not discriminate. That's a problem. Uh, they're very easy for the enemy to avoid. If once you've detected yeah. landmines in an area, yeah. you go around. You just don't go in the area. Yeah. Or guess what? You fly over it. Oh wow! Well, because yeah. <laughs> well, we have airplanes nowadays. This yeah, isn't we World forgot War about One, that. guys. Yeah, yeah, and they're easily substitutable. The battlefield value of them is not unique. The destroy, like if you care about the kinetic effects or like how it yeah. functions in an operation, you can find other ways to achieve the same boom. You know, and you can't manipulate them well, which makes them like inherently bad for coercion. Yeah, yeah, they're just there. You don't control it, well, right? 
the only way this could ever work, it'll never happen, but you'd have to geotag every single landmine and prove that they were gone when the conflict ends. Because that's the only way to sort of, the, the flow-on effects that we still see in Africa and especially in Southeast Asia, hugely in Southeast yeah, Asia. Yeah. No landmine proponents no. have actually offered to do that. No. That would actually, it wouldn't negate some of these like strategic arguments Public for why opinion, they're not useful. Though. Yeah, they could do something to better their case. The, to me, this is another example of like where hawks, people who see military solutions to all manner of problems, they are counting on the ignorance of the other side. They're counting on the yeah. ignorance of doves. They're counting on the ignorance of peaceniks to be unable to make arguments in the national security box. Yeah. And that's how they get by. But not on this show. No. I... <laughs> one other, one other quick hit. Um, shout out to Chicago Council on Global Affairs. They do the best polling on foreign policy in the world consistently that I've seen. There are a few places that do like foreign policy polling. Theirs is like so good, so relevant. Um, and they just came out with another set of survey data. And one of the key findings I just wanted to mention real quick, and this will come up later in the episode too. 57% of millennials are against American exceptionalism. Okay. They say America is not the greatest nation on earth. They're the only demographic in the U.S., though, where a majority say that. And this is interesting because and one of the things, one of the other problems is they sort of aggregate millennials and Gen Z. It's possible that yeah. the numbers would be different um, if you broke Gen Z out separately. I don't think we're different enough to warrant that. Or even more. Yeah. It would be even... Gen Z probably has this feeling even more yeah, that America okay. yeah, is not yeah, special yeah. or we're special in a fucked up way. <laughs> sort of the consequence of growing up being the best, isn't it? You don't really, you're sort of you're free to throw that away. Cause you I was told, to I was told growing up every, I mean, I knew nothing about the world, but one thing I was told in all my classes was that we've never lost a war. That's but, post, that's post Vietnam, but, man. But, uh, but that's still the but, mythology. That's the mythos. <laughs> You know? Okay. Uh, and it's like you just take it for granted because it's what people tell you. Um, and then you, you know, you grow up, whatever. But yeah, so this is interesting. It's, it's what's bizarre about this finding is that the majority of all Americans, all demographics, including millennials, still believe that military superiority makes the U.S. safer. It's declining across generations, and millennials hold that view less than boomers and others yeah. Gen X. but even millennials as a majority even though a majority of millennials are against american exceptionalism they think america is not the greatest they even a majority of millennials are still saying that military superiority makes us safer it's kind of a problem uh yeah also the, the, the that to me that doesn't sense. go together yeah no. yeah that's that's um actually they work against each other almost. Yeah, and this you will come up again. can't be exceptional without military dominance. This will come up again later in the episode, but to me this is revealing like almost like a lack of global literacy. That is actually one of the important insights when you're reading between the lines of data like this because the answers don't really mesh together. <laughs> but good insights regardless, so shout out to really Chicago insights. Council. Yeah. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. Alright, for Prediction Market this week, we've got three really quick ones. Well, I think they're really quick ones. Maybe we're, they won't be. <laughs> but question one is from the brother Yoda. 
Yeah, it's, uh, this should have been an AMA question, but I am a little bit lazy, and I just thought this would be a great question one icebreaker. Will Trump be re-elected following his farce acquittal? I, I cannot say yes. I have to say no. This is... This is pushing the boundaries of, am I going to make just pure yeah. analytical predictions yeah. versus yeah. am I going to make the world worse via my predictions? Uh, <laughs> Are you going to help? Is, is this going to aid it? I don't want to put things out into the universe <laughs> that might that might like poison reality. Well, my um, chakra says it's okay. Yeah. So you can... Well, this is why I don't take prediction market too seriously. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, no, he will not. <laughs> Ouch, again, again, with the prediction market hate. I still love you, Jake. It's my bread and butter, man. I still love you. It's my bread and butter. Um, I'm going to say, no, he will not be reelected. Okay, that's safe. Question two. Will Ukraine seek any further compensation from Iran following the shooting of the Ukrainian passenger plane before June? Uh, so they've already sought compensation. Iran has already, mm. I mean, they sort of proactively admitted to botching this. Yeah. I don't think that there's, I, th- I kind of feel like the story is passing by now. There's nothing more that Ukraine can squeeze out of Iran. And Iran has got more existential concerns, frankly, than Ukraine. So I'm going to say no. That's safe, I think. It's sort of astounded me how quick everyone's forgot about it. I know. That, that We're state, all goldfish now. Yeah. Like everything, nothing... Nothing happened, or it all happened a thousand years ago, even though it was yesterday. I was listening to episodes of this podcast from over the ho- recorded over the holidays, which was only a month ago, and it's it it has this feeling of like nostalgia, or like it was for, like oh my god, that was only a month ago. It what felt a like years ago. Time. Yeah, <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. As before Jake assassinated by. everyone else yeah. on the podcast. Before I um, reclaim my rightful clay. Question three. China halved tariffs on $75 billion worth of United States goods due to the coronavirus outbreak. Will any further cutbacks on the trade war be made by either side before June in the vein of the one that happened yesterday? Yeah, that's a good question. Coronavirus is kind of a black swan. It's just out of left field. It's come out of nowhere. Yeah. So I'm going to say... So there's there's no way to know. So I'm going to say, no, there will not be further rollbacks of, of, of tariffs in the trade war between now and June. Between now and June. Yeah. Yep, that's fair. I, I do have to say, though, man, although the episode was released yesterday, it was recorded last week, so that's where we got our news from. Oh, I did fucking horrible last week. Oh, oh that was, <laughs> it was unfortunately, it was happened to me. The worst one so far. I said the John one Bolton got, was going to yeah, testify. And like, the one you got right was the Israel one. So, <laughs> so like that's a, it's a it's a it's a different it's different, which is great. But uh, New Zealand was actually the first to halt flights from the Five Eyes countries. So surprising, actually. Yeah. Even I mean, Australia. I was, I was still expecting New it, Zealand. Yeah. Unfortunately, you were wrong, Van. But I think it serves the greater good that you were wrong. All right. Let's jump into Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. All right, so I've got three tweets to share this week. All of them are juicy. The first one is from Chris Clary, who's a professor at University of Albany in New York. 
He's a um, well-known nuke guy. And he says, I take no comfort from the fact that most of the people who advocated for this dumb idea, he's talking about <laughs> low-yield submarine-launched yeah. nuclear weapons, tac tactical nukes. Uh, I take no comfort from the fact that most of the people who advocated for this dumb idea live within the Beltway and will be incinerated early on after Russia mistakes their low-yield nuke for a first strike and begins global thermonuclear war. And that, there's truth in it as always, and yeah. snark in it. It's snark that only an academic can give. Yes, uh, and it reinforces the Andrew Ficini piece from last time, yes. the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Yes. Tactical nuclear, low-yield nuclear weapons are a solution in search of a problem. The, and the only advocates for this fucking weapon are people inside the Beltway. This is a botched guy yeah and they're yeah ironically they're gonna be on the high very high on russia's target list yeah. or china's and so or whoever get whoever who, makes yeah, a mistake whoever miss whoever yeah. missing whoever takes the oh whoever forgets that it's low yield you know so yeah. the risk the risk of accidental nuclear war or misperceived nuclear conflict versus what you get out of this what do you get? What do you get out of this? You get a defense industrial payday. You get, I don't know, ontological security. You feel better about yourself. Do you though? Like, not me. No. Fuck. <laughs> not somebody who's sane. Well, there's some crazy motherfucker and I won't mention his name, but he, he's an open, he's like an opportunistic conservative, kind of like uh, Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> and okay. He, he's, he's a well-known like nuclear scholar guy. He publicly outed himself on Twitter saying that he like proudly that he is primarily responsible for this decision. No. And that like he was consulting with the administration and shaping this for a long time. He's an advocate of nuclear primacy, not just military primacy, nuclear primacy. He believes that you have to, that America is not going to be secure unless it has nuclear dominance at all times, which means that you have to accept nuclear arms races as part of reality. No, really He's too a much waltz. Super dangerous dude. Um, and he makes the, it's not even clear how much he is like a true believer in these arguments as compared to like, He's just cynically opportunistic, and he likes being a contrarian. And that's his personality. Like, who knows? Oh, so this toxic. That's that. It, it reminds me of someone who hasn't read any arguments against their position ever. You know, um, like has who's only read the pro nuclear primacy literature. Well, he's a super accomplished scholar, and like his yeah. research is on point in terms of like the quality of his his writing, and he does a lot of statistics, and his his, his methods are like pretty sound. But he actively ignores parts of the literature that don't agree with what he's saying. He doesn't play on like the critique of him often is that like. He's making arguments that act as if they are blind and unaware to basic insights from people like Scott Sagan or, yeah. you know, like uh, things that we know in security studies. And he just like won't engage with it. He just kind of skips by it and then makes his own case or will make a straw man that doesn't engage with the best arguments in the literature. And my, just... yeah, my beef with him is that his regardless of his academic credentials, he he takes these positions on policy that are just straight up dangerous. And to be proud about it, I said on Twitter, like, that's peak Washington to yeah. out yourself proudly for being like the oh. yeah, the sponsor of something that makes the world less safe. Fucking good for you, dude. Which is also why I don't want to name him because like 
F him. I don't yeah. want to give him the publicity. Yeah. He likes getting negative attention. He's got that Trumpian kind of thing. I'm really getting sick of this Trumpian shit. That's yeah. a fake thing. I mean, who knows? Like, things could be fine, but they could also end in a nuclear mushroom cloud. And what are yeah. you what are you getting when yeah. with that risk? That's the problem for me. It's like this isn't rational. It's not a worthy what if. <sighs> yeah, yeah. It's just it, there's a botched understanding of deterrence at play here, and it's like unique to the Beltway. So. Shout out to Chris Clary, not shout out to the other guy. Uh, <laughs> he who shall not be named. Yeah. Tweet number two comes from OG friend of the pod, Matt Duss, who, hey. as you probably know, foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. He tweeted, if rethinking the forever war just means refocusing on great power competition with China and or Russia, we've learned nothing. We need to think we need to rethink the entire premise that U.S. global military hegemony is necessary to keep us safe and prosperous. So there's a, there's a lot to like unpack here. I'll try to be like very brief with it. I mean, one th- I generally think he's right here, and his heart is in the right place. Analytically, I think he's basically right too. There is a mindset problem, and it is a militarist's mindset in essence, where it's like every problem, the solution has something to do with the military. Um, that's fucked up, right? And that's how you, that's one of the ways that you end up justifying forever wars, which everybody recognizes as a problem. Um, and he's right that military superiority is not a worthy goal. It's not keeping us safe or prosperous. There's all kinds of problems. It's counterproductive in so many ways, aside from like the moral question of, of military superiority. Having said that, none of that means that China and Russia are not problems, they're not threats. Right. Um, You don't need to be dominant, but you cannot neglect the balance of power. And Russia and China are anti-progressive, anti-democratic forces in the world. And so the the main vector of competition is, I think, shouldn't be military. But that doesn't mean no competition. There's a presumption. I read a presumption into this or some of the people who are advising Sanders, I know for a fact, Mm. think that policy elites engage in threat inflation systematically like they're always overselling threats sometimes that's true sometimes it's not true but you shouldn't do the opposite you shouldn't reflexively undersell threats either that's more dangerous than overselling yeah especially when it's it's specifically threats that are anti-progressive anti-democratic forces i mean like that's it is a unique problem to the left that russia and china operate foreign policies with imperial characteristics because right-wing governments don't inherently have a problem with imperialism even in america but left-wing governments should and do and so if you're like if you're in the bernie camp you should be have a principled problem when other countries demonstrate imperial patterns in their foreign policy the same way that you have a problem with america demonstrating imperialism in its foreign policy so this is it's like shout out to matt dust but i want to just be clear about not giving China and Russia a pass. Maybe I'm inviting another discussion in lieu of the Transformers one, but I'm curious <laughs> as to what Matt Dust thinks about China speaking for Tonga in the United Nations and what what we could do about that, or if we should do anything about that, because that's imperialism. Yes. It's global imperialism. Yes. And that's probably the most recent example I could think, because it's in my backyard. <laughs> That's the, yeah, even more personal. So yeah. the, there is a school of thought within the left, and some of them are advising uh, Bernie, that believes that spheres of influence are a good thing slash worthwhile, even though 
there operate when China's sphere of influence is functionally imperial. Yeah. And it's anti the sovereignty of other states. And but their argument for it is that like they jump to the conclusion like, well, if you oppose it, that means you have to go to war with China and it's not worth that. And you can come to some great power stability arrangement. But to come to it, it's you should come to a great power stability arrangement. But you shouldn't do it at the expense of yeah. other states. Yeah. That's anti-democratic. It is. Don't don't fall into the trap, man. And there is a school of thought that has actively um, supported sphere of influence politics, and it's it's dangerous. And so I wanted to foreground that here because yeah. Matt Dust is not endorsing spheres no, of influence. No, it's not. No, no. But I just very, want to yeah. sharpen that point. Yeah. Definitely want to make that. I was not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, attacking yeah. the brother. I, I'm just, I'm honestly just curious as to what the Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor thinks about that. If yeah. he if he wants to send an AMA, I'm curious too because like let us know. Yeah, I would, I would love to know. Actually, I'd love to have him on the show, Matt. Please. <laughs> um, okay, and then the third tweet is from Emma Ashford, who is at the Cato Institute. I mean, famously a libertarian think tank, but. They're on the correct side of a lot of issues these days. And so, like, historically, I have this reservation, if you could say that, about uh, libertarianism. Oh, me too. But they're they're uh, on the money in many respects on foreign policy these days. And she says, uh, she quotes the Chicago Council pol okay. polling data. So, again, this is where this comes up again. She says, it's going to be hard to sell a strategy of great power competition with China when only 38% of Americans see its rise as a threat. She's pulling that, of course, from the Chicago Council survey. Yeah. Um, I think, so a lot of people and a lot of right-wingers on Twitter were like wondering why, how can only 38% of Americans see China as like this existential threat? Yeah. And like, we've tried so hard to red bait and you know, like, seriously, they said that we've done everything we can. What more can we do? It's just like a funny thing to disturbing, <laughs> but, but it raises, there is an analytical question here. Like why would, why would only 30%, 38% uh, see China as a threat when the foreign policy community, people who know stuff uh, overwhelmingly, like there's a bipartisan consensus in Washington about the China threat, right? And I think it's because normal people are seeing this uh, in the context of the drift toward fascism under Trump. The killer's already in the House. Are you really yeah. going to worry about the far threat of a power yeah. that's not nearly as, as capable of, as you are when you are literally being converted? Like national security is a joke when the killer's already in the House. When Trump is like the whole Senate tram sham trial yeah. proved that the yeah. rule of law is for suckers. Well, I mean, what? It is. It is what you can get you can get away with anything in the United States. Because the president can, so why can't you block a witness at your own trial? Yeah, try it. <laughs> so this kind of reveals again to me like there's an element of like public ignorance about foreign affairs on display in an answer like this but it may be just that it's it's relative to the threat that people see with trump or the everyday the everyday corruption oh they're all it's all whatever like we can't trust anything so who knows the interesting thing with china is their their danger is not coming from the traditional view of danger like when I first came to You're university, not going to invade the U.S. Yeah. No, when I first came to university, I sort of discounted the Chinese. <laughs> See, I don't 
I sound like such a Warhawk asshole. The Chinese issue. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just counted it because then I explained, I got explained to the Belt and Road Initiative mm. and all the economic imperialism that's happening. And I thought, shit, this is actually quite dangerous because they're not turning democratic anytime soon, but they're controlling a large swathe of what I would consider democratic countries. They're eroding, yeah, they're eroding democracy everywhere they go. It's terrifying. Yeah. But then so is Trump. Yep. And I can imagine, no, I can, I can, I can understand how in the United States, they're like, no, we've got bigger shit to worry about at the moment than China. We've got this maniac as a commander in chief. It, re- it really relativizes the China threat yeah. when you see what Trump does abroad. Um, but the, the, the reason I think there's public ignorance in this too is because like i said at the beginning majorities of respondents across generations across demographics say that military superiority keeps us safer military superiority is benchmarked against the china military threat and so (laughs) you can't say we need military superiority but china's not a problem when you say military superiority you are by definition (laughs) implying that china is a problem right and so the fact that the public doesn't get that connection suggests they don't it this is whatever they they don't understand how the sausage is made or how these decisions are arrived at and so on some level you have to take some of this data with a grain of salt yeah. if if the ignorance level is this deep but um i don't know it's 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 useful to play with it's useful for the podcast and it there is. But there is an educational demand that's just sitting or an educational vacuum right now on foreign policy Sort of goes back to our previous statements on the podcast about how it's hard it is to democratize foreign policy because yeah. this is what you got to work with. Yeah. And I think Winston Churchill said the greatest argument against democracy is a five minute conversation with the closest voter. And, and, and I thought that was, it's witty and funny, but it's also pretty sad. Yeah. And that's sort of the reason we, why we can't democratize these sort of decisions. Oh man. State well, of the planet, eh? you never know. Maybe we can. Maybe everybody will listen to the show and then yeah. become uh, foreign policy intellectuals, and then we can make democratic decisions on foreign policy. Who knows? Yeah. Let's move on to armchair analysis. So the premise of this uh, segment is that we dive into an article that we thought was interesting, was crap, was good, was funny, uh, and we tell you all about it. Give us your reckons. Today's armchair analysis piece comes from the New Republic by Joshua Zoffer. To end forever war, keep the dollar globally dominant is the title. And it sort of goes on the idea of a lot of people think that the United States global hegemony, both economically and militarily, is sort of predicated on military dominance. And the author of this piece sort of argues that it doesn't have to to be like the united states can be a global hegemon economically and not be war hawks and it will actually benefit an end forever war because you can sort of have economic responses to military issues and it brings up a few examples like north korea and one other which i should i should have taken notes i should have brought them in i know i know (laughs) this is genuinely armchair analysis when you don't have your notes yeah it's (laughs) I, I'm true to the name, but I don't know if I agree with this piece, man. Right, we're going to have it out. 
we're going to have it out because I know you do. And I'm going to get blown out of the water because <laughs> I know that already, but I'm going to die on this hill and maybe out myself in the process. Well, there's a way to reconcile this. Go, go ahead. We'll, we'll start. This piece relies on the liberal international order being primary throughout the planet. And the liberal international order sort of fuels global inequality and ca- capitalism. And I'm not a, fan, and I'm, and I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of that. Jake's more anti-capital than I am. Yeah, I'm. You know how Van said I'm not a Marxist. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I laugh extra long because I might be. But then again, I don't know. I'm only, t- only 22. Don't hate me, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm just. We may have st- to edit out your age to keep yeah, the serious. I'm just a student. I'm just a student. Like, I'm allowed to be a Marxist. Yeah, but it just seems. There's some of the arguments this piece makes, like that the dollar can can be hegemonic without military dominance. I don't see that happening because such things have happened in the past, like Libya trying to start their own African currency, the gold standard, which was not looked on favorably by the global great powers and answered militarily. I don't think there could have been any other solution to that in the eyes of the United States. So that sort of that's a buffer against the idea that we can use the hegemonic ability of the u.s dollar to end forever war and end the military dominance well okay so i think so and here it comes yeah well so, <laughs> yeah. so there, there's just there are there are things that you read into the piece that i like i don't think are necessarily in the piece okay so your characterizations of the liberal international order as sustaining capitalism as kind of fueling globalization and you know worsening inequality around the world i think those characterizations about the liberal international order are basically true, right? What I think is separable is dollar dominance from the liberal international order. Okay. And so my my read of, you know, maybe maybe the author can weigh in, but like my read of the piece was that you can he he acknowledged the sort of problems of like liberal hegemony in a just broad sense in a political sense. And he was saying you can separate having dollar dominance and the fact that other countries denominate their trade and et cetera in terms of the U.S. dollar and U.S. centrality to the global economic system, you can separate that from the broader framework of liberal international order. And the problem with uh, focusing on liberal hegemony or like linking up liberal hegemony and militarism or military dominance that is that's the like old recipe that there's you know like 1990s liberals yeah. would would yeah. make like that's you don't want to make their argument for them like the reality is it's not up to the US to decide whether to entertain dollar multilateralism versus yeah. dollar dominance like it's other countries who will make this decision and some some countries are looking frantically for alternative ways of like not having to use the u.s as the world's reserve currency or whatever so like there is a movement afoot that uh this piece this piece is responding to another piece uh, yeah, okay. like an a reaction and like the other the Post original the show notes yeah so yeah might give context on this piece yeah so like the debate that's happening here is being triggered in some ways by both the u.s abuse of its of its financial power, the ability yeah. to impose sanctions and stuff, like weaponize its its weaponize the economy. Um, at the same time that the U.S. abuses that power historically, it's a power that's been invested in the United States by virtue of countries continuing to denominate the U.S. dollar, and uh, 
for for trade uh, as a reserve currency. And so, for, so there's several issues here. One is that it's not up to the U.S. whether to like give up this this power. Another issue is the dollar dominance or dollar hegemony is, of course, a form of power. If you want to fight corruption, fascism, kleptocracy, you sh you don't want to do it with one hand tied behind your back. You need power. You need the ability to yeah. Like, how else are you going to do it with like good faith? Yeah. Um, That's why the neutrality act got taken down. Yeah, and this the, you have to. Yeah, like th this is one of the, in my uh, conversation with Dan Nexon from a couple episodes ago. Great episode, by the way. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit, and he was his his critique of the anti-imperial left. He's he's pretty left. I mean, he like defined Bernie Sanders' foreign policy in 2016. Yeah. He his critique of the anti-imperial left is basically that like they just don't they haven't. Uh, reconciled themselves to their own ignorance about power and how power politics works. Yeah. And part of that is because of this presumption that they're never going to be in power. So they can always be the, <laughs> be the contrarian and Ouch. the anti and the yeah, critic. Yeah, I know that feeling. And he's like, that's not a healthy thing to, to presume. You should presume that you can influence power and that you can be in power. Well, that's the idea. Otherwise, you're just a moody teenager. Yeah, gadfly. Yeah. Like, I you came to uni and they, 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 you had two choices, Marx or Ayn Rand. And yeah, you chose yeah. Marx. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, that was actually in my first political science class. I got given the choice. I got one side of the class. <laughs> you got to sit that side or that side. Yeah. Because taxation is theft or everything is theft. Yeah. So like, either way, you know. That's a good way to put it. Either way. Yeah. And I definitely... I. That actually gives it more clarity, Van. Like, I'm not so opposed as I was to this piece. And the, the other, the point the piece, like, doesn't quite make that I would have made is that, like, I believe if you, if the U.S. was no longer central to the global economy, if we lost dollar hegemony but remained militarily dominant, I think that would worsen militarism. I Like, I saw in the yeah. Obama administration how the availability of sanctions, the the ease with which the Treasury Department could impose sanctions and block transactions and stuff, how that became a like a pressure release valve on military options. It was it strengthened the ability to say at the National Security Council, no, we don't want to bomb this. No, we don't want to do a drone strike, even though we did plenty. We don't like <laughs> did, we did far fewer than we would have done if we were all, if the military is the only think of it like this. If the military is the only tool in your toolkit, then every solution is a military solution, right? Yes. And so when you take away the economic lever of power, but you have this super strong military lever of power, and like obviously I don't think we should have that, but yeah. we we do and you can't address this question independent of the military question. Like if you're just going after this, we need dollar multilateralism. We need to end dollar hegemony. And if that's your if that's what you're targeting and then the military thing stays in place because of the military industrial complex, you have actually made a worse situation yeah. for the world. Yeah. Like this is why you have to be careful about fucking with like you throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, like that's the revolutionary impulse. That's almost by definition Chopping what revolution heads. is. Yeah. yeah. Chopping heads. Yeah. Some of those heads might be useful, you know. Make Paris great again. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now it's it's up to the listener now, man, I guess. Yeah. There's on your analysis this week. So 
So the Marxist little, has yeah, infiltrated the show yeah. and gotten Included, rid of uh, two of the moderates. I got him one in military this training, is, which he didn't know he was attending. Yeah. And one's just traveling, which yeah. I don't know if she planned on doing either, but <laughs> I influenced that. Yeah, let's, let's, let us know uh, if the second year university Marxist student or the <laughs> um, <laughs> or the uh, learned professor is correct. Oh, I'll man. be eagerly waiting your response. All right, to be continued. <laughs> All right, now it's time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. Ask me anything this week. Mark Olson, what are five things appropriators could do in the next budget cycle to strengthen United States leadership in the Indo-Pacific region? So one of the uh, premises of ask me anything is that like I don't prepare answers. So I don't have yeah. five. But yeah. Mark, <laughs> it's, it's a prediction market yeah. question almost. Shout out to Mark because uh, he listens to my old podcast too, Pacific Pundit. So he's been a long time listener. And he, I think this personal capacity, but he works on Capitol Hill, which is why this appropriations okay. question okay. comes into play. So what could the U.S. do to uh, signal U.S. leadership in the Indo-Pacific? I think actually the, the answer is not, one, I don't, I don't know what leadership means anymore in the context of what just happened in the Senate, to be honest. Yeah. There is, and, and allies are watching and seeing with dismay. I saw Australian, Australian um, policy officials and uh, think tankers tweeting crazy stuff about, not crazy, completely legitimate stuff about how embarrassed they are about this. They're so pro-American and they they can't believe what they're seeing. Yeah, this is all like a farce. Idiot. Yeah, like it's beyond Alliance not being credible. It's like, what are we even talking about here? We're like, not the same planet. We're just, yeah, like we're, we're just waiting in line to be extorted. It's basically like wait till we're in the barrel, you know? Best case scenario. Let alone, can we count on you in times of crisis? I mean, and so so the context here matters a lot. And I feel like, you know, the Hill in particular, the Congress almost pretends like it's business as usual, but there's this weird madman who happens to be in the White House. And it's not business as usual. Allies no, are judging not. us, right? Everybody's judging us. And they're making st their own strategic calculations in a context of just absolute madness and uncertainty. And so... Having said all that, I think what needs to happen on the appropriation side, like what you spend money on to signal seriousness of purpose, it need, it's not about buying new weapons systems. It's about stabilizing Asia and yeah. showing a commitment to Asia. And that means that you cannot be appropriating funds disproportionately for the Middle East still. Well, that's not going to happen under this administration. You can't, you can't provide any kind of like no. funding pathways. You can't be providing funding support or security assistance to the Saudi war in Yemen. You can't be funding. Uh, there's a debate about hypersonic missiles because, like, it depends on how you view strategic competition with China. But and so, like, advanced R and D that is still valuable. Very. But you providing funding for tactical nuclear weapons ain't helping shit, right? And so the larger context is actually what should you not spend money on? And I think that's the right way to think about it. And so like one of the, the farces and so Obama's rebalance to Asia, Republicans from the Bush era used to claim that they started the rebalance to Asia. <laughs> and oh, yeah. it's nice that it was bipartisan okay. to policy, but they tried to claim credit for it. Yeah. And 
What they really meant was that they saw China as a threat quite early, before China was even really a threat. They saw everything as a threat. Yeah. So one, <laughs> for, for one thing, count. you saw everything as a threat, you fuckers. <laughs> but the other thing is like, they, you can't claim to have started the rebalance to Asia when you plowed 70% of U.S. federal resources wow. into the Middle East and fucking forever wars. So it's saying it's going to rain every day. When That's it got, does. Yeah. yeah I you that. robbed Asia. Yeah. You know, that's not that's anti rebalance to Asia. That's why the rebalance was necessary. So the the and the lesson here is that it's not about what you do for Asia that matters. It's it matters what you're doing in and for Asia in the context of everything else. And in when it comes to military appropriations in particular, there are so many risks of affecting crisis instability and fueling arms races and making decisions that allow or encourage other countries to enter arms races, to spend yeah. more on defense. And to militarize the region more is not a good solution, right? It doesn't mean you ignore the balance of power. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't appropriate money for defense. It just means that that's not how you solve this problem. And this issue of U.S. leadership, which I read as a question of like U.S. commitment to the region, yeah. to being a stabilizing force for the region. Yeah, that, I saw that. Yeah, I agree. How do you be a stabilizing force? By not militarizing the region too much and by showing that you're focused as a percent, like show me your budget and I'll show you your strategy. Yeah. If your budget is disproportionately to this fucking part of the world that doesn't matter as opposed to Asia, then you're signaling that you're not serious about Asia, man. So I don't have like the tick list of, of what to appropriate for. It's mostly what you don't appropriate for. And the standard needs to be like, do we like uh, this came out of some of my conversations with South Korean policymakers yeah. over the holidays? Like they're very worried about this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy getting entangling them into unnecessary conflicts and seeing it as like an overly militaristic solution to problems that are like more nuanced yeah. and political. Yeah. And you have to recognize that pretty much all states in Asia except maybe Australia, maybe Japan, they all want to hedge. They don't want to just be all in with confronting China. They don't want to be all in on the U.S. bandwagon, particularly now. Well, yeah. Thanks, Mark. That was great. Yeah. So, good question. <laughs> Number two. We only got two today. Lock 74. Why does the United States feel so strongly that global force presence is so critical? No other country has ever had it, and it hasn't stopped them from successfully pursuing their interests. The resources required to maintain it are absurd. I agree. Smart question. Yeah, very smart question. Yeah, on theme too. So there's actually a couple answers to this, though. Like on one level, policymakers in Washington are sounds like I'm throwing shade, and it's because I am. They are not used to thinking strategically. There is a there's this habit of presuming that how you dominate, how you win, how you exercise influence is by retaining the ability to overmatch potential adversaries. So you out you outslug the other guy. You destroy more than the other guy. You can out you can out kill them. And that's that's the kind of the premise of military superiority, right? Bit weird though. That that's very American. I'm gonna outkill you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like that's what overmatches. Like and that requires that. That's what requires global force presence, right? Yeah. Um, if you believe that that's how you win, because you need to be where you need to be to have timely responses, so that you can outkill everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But that reflects pretty thin, weak strategic thinking. And Locke is making a very good point here, which is like, no nation in history has ever had this level of ambition or have, has exercised that level of influence. And yet plenty of nations throughout history have been able to like figure out strategies to secure their interests. And so capabilities, weapon power, like military power has muted the ability of Americans to think strategically. Yeah, and yeah. so the strategic imagination needs some reviving and i think it will actually only come about once we get off the standard of of military superiority but there's also like path dependence and inertia pre-2016 especially in like the unipolar moment post-cold war glow america was the default superpower it, it, it wasn't even like by design although that's debated and so the <laughs> The United States had this preeminent military and they came up with sort of political strategy to say, OK, this this global military underwrites all these things that we like about the liberal international order. Yeah. And that's where that comes from. And that's how you end up getting the notion of liberal internationalism as this marriage of military dominance and uh, international institutions and a capitalist peace, economic interdependence and globalization. And that's where you get that fusion and alliances because it supports both the capitalist side and the, the military side. That was the old thinking. And there were problems with that thinking, but it's what it's what dominated. And it wasn't all bad. It did keep us out of great power wars. It did stave off arms races for a while, right? And uh, international institutions some are good, some are bad. So it's like a mixed bag, right? Like liberal internationalism itself. Now we're kind of in a new era, but a lot of people have not updated their priors. Yeah. So you're yeah. still locked into the default of military superiority. And if you don't have much strategic imagination to begin with. Because it hasn't failed yet, right? That's their opinion. Yeah, like, you need a great yet. power war before yeah, you're going to yeah. change the paradigm. Yeah. So like, why, why change? Why, why fix it's not broken? So I'm trying to get ahead of the curve a little. Yeah, yeah. You know, prevent great power. Wars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who wants to do that though? Yeah. Who wants to stop a war and all that? Not Washington. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry. I'm not anti-Washington. I'm of Washington, but I am critical of Washington. <laughs> that's that's. I I think yeah. a lot more people should be, especially think... if you live there. <laughs> it's the Rome of its day, you know. And that's good and bad. So we need some new uh, questions for Ask Me Anything. How does one Get in touch with the podcast and put the questions forward, man. Oh, good question. And I cannot believe that I did not ever fucking mention this on the show. Ask me anything at undiplomaticpodcast.com. If you shoot questions to that email address, uh, we'll get them and then put them on the show. And uh, I blast it out on Twitter every once in a while. I just keep forgetting to mention it here. And we, we accept all questions. And it's great because it sort of gives us a good perspective on the listener base. So anything yeah. you're curious about... Van will happily answer it for you. Yeah. I reserve the right to not answer it something, <laughs> but so, so far we pretty much just go with whatever. It's only, I've only, I think I've only filtered out like two or three questions that were you fascist. not, not appropriate. <laughs> Sensor. Sensor. All right. All right, gang, that's going to do it. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic. Sign up for the newsletter. Uh, newsletter. <laughs> Get woke. Uh, say the word newsletter correctly. And, uh, you know, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic if you want to support the show. And, of course, rate us on iTunes, etc. as usual. See you next time. Peace.